Okay, Romans 5. And I'm going to read from verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, do keep uh, that uh, passage open, which we're going to be looking at over the next few minutes. As we get going, uh, just to say there's an outline of the talk, um, which you can uh, download in the, from the description box. Um, people, uh, Some people like to use that to make notes, to stay their thinking, and to help them concentrate and have something to uh, come back to in the week. Uh, so make use of that as you will. And then to say at the end uh, of the message, there'd be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments. Uh, so particularly now as we're moving into further into the Book of Romans and Paul's beginning to explore some of the implications of being justified by faith, um, do feel free to make a note of anything that you want to ask about or, or comment on. Well, with that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity now to look at your word together. As your people, please would you help us to listen to it, to trust it and to obey it. And we ask this, that you might be seen amongst us as the God who is truthful good and rightly sovereign over us. Amen. This morning we are looking at Romans 5, 1 to 11 and it is a wonderfully positive passage full of hope, uh, God's love for us uh, and assurance for the future. I mean it really is a spectacular section. 
But in order to appreciate the magnificence of this and what Paul is arguing here, we will need to first go back to the problem of our sin and God's judgment. Now you might think that this has already been settled. You know, we've already seen uh, from Romans chapter 3 that God has sent his son as a propitiating sacrifice to turn aside God's wrath from his people by suffering in their place so that through faith we stand justified before him. And whilst that is true, there is still a judgment to come. There is still the day of God's wrath. That's not changed. Paul spoke about such a day in Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 speaks of the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Every one of us will be raised for this final judgment. How will we fare? Will we escape God's wrath? Now, I think that it is not quite the question that it ought to be because of certain assumptions that are made about God. In particular, that when God comes, everything is going to be okay. The assumption is that the second coming of the Lord Jesus is necessarily a good thing. But God is coming to judge the whole world and hold it to account. See, if there's any sense of presumption or complacency in us, the second coming is not a problem. But Christ will come in blazing holiness. And the conclusion of Romans 3 is that no one is righteous. Will we be saved from God's wrath? Well, what I want to do is first of all show you that hope really is the theme of this passage. Then show you the character of God's love for us. And then finally follow the logic of Paul as he argues that this is the basis for our assurance in the final judgment. Now that Paul is talking about hope is right there in Romans chapter 5 verse 2. Uh, Romans 5 verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now we've reached something of a turning point in the book of Romans. And Paul is now going to spend the next few chapters exploring the implications of being justified by faith. We have peace with God. We now stand under grace. And included in the panoply of blessing is hope. The hope of the glory of God. Back in uh, Romans 3.23, Paul summarised the human problem as falling short of the glory of God. But now Paul is talking about the hope of the glory of God. Paul is talking here about the glorification of the Christian, of how he will restore his image in his people. 
Now, in verse 3, Paul argues that present suffering does not compromise this hope, but engenders it. We've seen similar sequences um, in 1 Peter and James chapter 1. And here we see that it's through suffering that God builds perseverance in us. And in the long run, perseverance builds character and Christian maturity. And this in turn engenders hope. We learn to live with an eternal perspective. I mean, if our goals are all bound up with this life, if we are those who simply live to maximise our happiness, well then suffering is the unbearable failure of life, utter failure. But for the Christian, even in the midst of our tears, we can rejoice in suffering because we know that God is building perseverance in Christian character and hope in our lives. And it is a hope that does not put us to shame, verse 5. Now this may seem an unusual turn of phrase, but it's reminiscent of Old Testament passages that affirm that those who hope in God will not be put to shame. It's the idea that Christians need not fear that God's provision of salvation will prove inadequate. There's no need for the Christian to fear that the final judgment will put them to shame. Why? Well, verse 5 is because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he has given us. It's at this point that Paul describes the character of the love that has been poured into our hearts. So let's read again uh, verse, uh, from verse 6. Romans 5 verse 6 Paul says for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us With what do you associate with God's love? In the New Testament, it is invariably the cross. And here, Paul makes a contrast between the pinnacle of human love and God's love shed at the cross. Now, we can have a bit of confusion here by what Paul means by a good person as opposed to a righteous person. And it could be that he is simply repeating the same idea, that it's, it's rare for someone to die for a righteous or a good person. <coughs> but it may be that whereas a righteous person is one who is just and upright, a good person may be one for whom we have a strong personal attachment and for whom, therefore, we would be more willing to die. You know, such as, a, I don't know, like a, a parent uh, giving their life to save their child. The point then would be that whilst it is rare for someone to die for a righteous person, 
it might be more likely to die for a good person, although that is still rare. The contrast then is that God did not send his son to die for the righteous or the good, but for the ungodly, for the sinner. In the Bible, it is simply astonishing that God loves anybody. I mean, by and large, it's not the way uh, uh, people tend to think, but the Bible delights to marvel at God's love. Uh, the reason that uh, uh, people don't think this way, well, uh, two reasons really. Not only do we think that God ought to love, that's the one thing that's widely accepted in our culture, but that he especially ought to love me because I'm nice. But look at what the text says. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us not because we are lovable, but because he's that kind of God. And that is why in the Bible, this side of Genesis 3, God's love is always marvelled at. God's love is wonderful, surprising, and in some ways not the way it ought to be. I mean, why doesn't he just condemn us? instead. The greatest demonstration of God's love for us is the cross. That is what Paul aligns it with and it's what the New Testament aligns it with. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, uh, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Or Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, where does the Bible speak of discovering the love of God? And if we align it with anything other than the cross, well, we've settled for second best and a dangerous second best. At the end of the day, if we have the love of God for us aligned and associated in our minds, not with what God discloses we should have it associated with, then with time, if not checked, it can lead us away to something else. At the end of the day, the greatest demonstration of the love of God for us is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now this character of God's love enables Paul to make the subsequent argument in verses 9 to 10. And it's here that he joins up this love of God to the hope of uh, the glory of God. Have a look at chapter 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him? From the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, the logic that Paul is using here is a how much more argument. 
Paul argues from the major to the minor. If God has already done the more, the most difficult thing, to reconcile and justify unworthy sinners, well, how much more can he be depended on to accomplish the easier thing? To save us from his wrath, now that we've brought, been brought into this relationship with him. Now notice that the wrath of God in verse 9 is referring to this day of God's wrath. The wrath of God that occurs in the final judgment. There's a timeline here. There is a judgment to come. And Paul, well, he's now answering the question, will we be saved from that wrath? And his answer is, of course we will. I mean, just consider the love that has been poured into our hearts, the love that is demonstrated at the cross. Christ died for us when we were his enemies. He set his love on us when we were hostile to him. It would be very peculiar if now that we're reconciled to him, that we would be put to shame. Notice that there is a repetition of ideas in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 runs parallel to verse 10. And when you have a kind of a parallel, parallelism like this, it's worth asking the question, well, what, what are the differences? Because verse 10 doesn't simply repeat verse 9, but adds a further level of meaning. So have a look. Well, we could observe that by his blood in verse 9 is parallel with by the death of his son in verse 10. We've got saved by him from the wrath of God in verse 9 is parallel with saved by his life, verse 10. But perhaps the most interesting is the parallel between we have now been justified in verse 9 with we were reconciled to God in verse 10. Because here reconciled has been substituted for justified. And we're, we're, we're beginning to see the comprehensiveness of the salvation that Jesus brings. Not only have we been justified, that is the unrighteous have been declared righteous, but we are also reconciled. Both God's hostility towards us and our hostility towards him have been dealt with. We're now at peace with God, not simply the absence of war, but relationship. We are now his people and he is our God. Well, Paul ends this section with verse 11. He says this, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul assumes that such reflection leads to rejoicing, to joy. Rather than fear, rather than the fear of possible judgment, we can rejoice in the confidence that God has given us that the hope that we have 
will not put us to shame. Now, what we're thinking about here is assurance in the final judgment. And of this, we can rejoice. Well, let me pray and then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, as the weight of Romans 1 to 3 sinks in and we are conscious of your holiness and our sinfulness, we do want to think very carefully about this question about will we be saved uh, from your wrath. We thank you for the great confidence that Paul has to reassure your people. We thank you that having been justified by faith, we now have this hope of the glory of God. And we thank you how Paul takes us back to the finest demonstration of your love for us in the cross, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Pray please that this is what we would associate and align our understanding of the love that you poured into our hearts with this um, demonstration at the cross. And pray please that you help us to understand the logic of Paul. Paul loves to argue logically and pray that we would understand that having done the more difficult thing and reconcile us to yourself whilst we were enemies, how much more will we be saved from your wrath now that we're reconciled to you? Pray please that we would be those that would know that Christian assurance is available to each one of us and pray that we would be confident uh, in the hope that we have and that with Paul we would have great joy in your provision for us. In Jesus name, Amen. Okay, at this point uh, there is the possibility of any questions or comments. The way it works is you can put a cue in the chat as will be demonstrated by Team Tech. And that lets you know that a question is on its way. Um, and also just means if you're trying to type a question in, we will wait for you until it comes through. So by all means, have a look through the text. Anything you want to ask about or explore a um, implication. Or it takes a few minutes. So I'll just give you a, a moment to gather your thoughts. Okay, we have question from Ricky Kamasha. which may well be a comment. We'll see. Oh, question. Um, may we go back over the contrast between human love and God's love in verses six to eight? Yes, we may. Um, so let me read verses 6 to 8 again. So it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what's going on here is a contrast between human love and God's love. And in particularly the, um, the pinnacle of human love is to give your life for someone. Um, and the observation of Paul is it's actually very rare for someone to give their life for someone, to show that kind of love. Um, and he only really explores the possibility that someone would do that for a righteous person or a good person. And that's clearly going to contrast with God because God sends his son to die for neither a righteous person or a good person because the conclusion of Romans 3 is that no one is righteous. So for Christ to die for us, what we're seeing here is a love that is um, it's just a different order than that which is found in, in human love. Because here you've got God, um, Christ dying for his enemies, for the ungodly. Um, and if it's worth saying again, I still think there can be confusion around what's this righteous person and good person. What's the difference between them? And it could be the same. It could just be saying, look, it's very rare for a human to die for a righteous stroke good person. Or there could be a slight progression so that a righteous person is just someone who is you know, um, a, good, um, a just person, you know, someone who's of good standing in society. Whereas a good person could be somebody that we have some kind of affections for, a personal relationship with, like a family member. And so therefore he's saying, it's very rare to die for someone who's just of good standing in society, but they may be slightly less rare to die for somebody who we have a personal commitment to. But his point is, it's rare. Um, but that is contrasted with the character of God's love, which is just, it's just, um, I mean, as I said before, it's astonishing. It's something that, that this side of Genesis 3, the Bible, the Bible continually marvels at, that God sets his love on his enemies, on the ungodly, on the unrighteous, because he's that kind of God. Um, but this is crucial to his argument, because if God loves us when we were his enemies, well, now we're reconciled, we're, we're no longer his enemies. So it would be peculiar if God withdraws his love at this point, because he's done the harder thing of setting his love on us when we're shaking our fists at him. You see, so it's in that sense, he, he wants to observe this astonishing character of God's love because it allows him to make this argument from the major to the minor um, so that's what's going on. So I hope that I mean it's pretty it's pretty amazing, and I think crucial again is that we want to go back to aligning God's love with the cross. That is where that's where the Bible calls us to associate God's love with us. You know, so we're not. Um, now, Paul doesn't you know, say, oh, can you remember some encounter you had with God? Or, um, you know, he's saying, let me take it back to the cross, because that is where you know um, God's love.
Okay, we've a question from, so I hope that helps, a question from Nikki, or the... Okay, oh, hang on, we've got bits of paper. This is quite a teen techie, right, let me just read Ricky's comment. Thanks, it's helpful. Yes, that helped my confusion, Ari, whether it was a positive contrast, just as so too, and also if there was a difference between righteous and good. Cool. Okay, it's a question from Nathan, using an old school um, bit of paper. In verse 11, the more than that, and the also seem to imply a new element aspect to be rejoiced in. Could it be the rejoicing through Christ, or is this reading too much into the connectives? Gosh. Okay, let's, let's start by rereading verse 11. So, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The question is, the more than that, and the also seem to imply a new element aspect to be rejoiced in. Could it be the rejoicing through Christ or is this reading too much into the connectives? Hmm. So I can tell you what I think um, and then you can see if this helps. So I think from what I remember of the commentary is that he's returning so the rejoicing element is, uh, is picks up on, it was introduced back in verse 3, I think, that we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And he's returning to this note of joy um, and that presently we have received reconciliation. Um, so not only as we look to the future and we think we will be safe from God's wrath and that is a, um, a hope in which we rejoice because you know, we don't fear you know, when, when we die we're not going to be swallowed up by death and judgment but that we will, we will be glorified and Paul will unpack that more in Romans 8 but I think he's thinking through presently we've received reconciliation so we are now reconciled to God. He is our God. We are his people. And that's a present cause for joy. And I think what Paul's doing, and we've talked about this before, like the order of salvation, is there's quite a lot going on. That when we talk about salvation, and, you know, we might typically say, oh, salvation is all about um, receiving forgiveness of sins. There's obviously more to it. To me, to go back to verse 1, we have been justified by faith, uh, past Presently, we have peace with God, which is picking up this idea of reconciliation. Um, I think the peace here is we're thinking less about just absence from war, but peace as in, whereas we were hostile to God and God was hostile to us, we've been reconciled. And this is the idea of now God is our God, we're his people. That's the biblical theme. And then the future is we have the hope of the glory of God. So we're starting to see there is a timeline to our salvation have been justified, presently reconciled, future, uh, the hope of glorification. And 
I mean, it's interesting because I think the the um, you know the emotion that the Bible describes for the Christian is invariably joy. That is our emotion, um, and even through tears of suffering and trials, there is this joy because through Christ we've been reconciled and we have this hope. So I think, I'm not sure to what extent in verse 11 he's adding, he's adding a new element, but just going back to that, the present theme of being reconciled, we have joy. So, Okay, question from Nikki. Is there significance to the order of endurance, character and hope? Are we to understand this as sequential? Endurance leads to character and character leads to hope. Thank you. Yes, interesting. Um, I think having thought about it in James, you know, I feel like I've, I've, I've spent some time thinking about this. Let's just have a look what order James um, gives. So James 1, he says, uh, James 1 verse 2, Count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, if you know that this testing of your faith produces steadfastness, so same as endurance, really, that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I guess that's the idea of character and um, the perfection of God and holiness. And then he goes on to say, Verse 12, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised uh, those who love him. So there is this idea of actually the goal of, of this endurance is ultimately the crown of life, which is the hope of the glory of God. It's a similar. I mean... Um, interesting I mean I mean presumably you're not just going through it in a linear way there is a kind of a you kind of go um, it's an ongoing it's an ongoing thing so um, basically you know this idea of we're going through suffering we're going through a trial that we we keep going as Christians and in doing that, we, we're developing endurance. God strengthens us. We develop a resilience. In that, that's going to lead to Christian character. And that in itself engenders this um, eternal perspective. Because really the only way you can make sense of suffering, and Paul will do this in chapter 8, is he says, the present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will follow. Um, and I think... It, Going back, I think it's a very important point that in many of us, we've been given the narrative of life is basically to pursue happiness. Um, and if that's the case, suffering it spoils that, just gets in the way. Um, whereas actually, Paul sees suffering ultimately as productive and that actually helps us to see that um, to pursue, pursue an eternal perspective. So... I mean, to be fair, in the commentary, didn't it say much more than that. So, yeah, I don't think it's a simple, you, you have endurance, then you have um, character, and then you have hope. But basically, 
it, there is this um, these connections and you, I think Paul's trying to help us to see how productive suffering is is that it brings these these three things uh, brings these three things about yeah I don't think I have anything more uh, yeah anything more on that so hopefully that sort of helps but I think it will be a you know um, yeah maybe a little bit less linear so probably it's a fair observation question from Ben um, okay he says suffering produces endurance endurance produces character character produces hope hope produces rejoicing and then more rejoicing question mark does it produce well yes I think so um, and I think yeah so this um, yeah it's helpful to be to go the, in this mix of um, uh, endurance um, character and hope there is rejoicing why is there rejoicing it's because endurance character and hope are three things that Christians prize that's what we value we perseverance is so precious for us because we we need to persevere and so to develop endurance and strength and resilience is precious because that helps us for future trials and character you know our heavenly father is holy and we want to be holy like him and similarly with the hope that that is the thing that we are pushing on to to receiving the crown of life and the hope of glory so i think in all of this but it's interesting because i don't think he's he's saying there's no suffering and I think we may have said before this idea that, you know, that there will be tears. And even now, some of us are going through very painful trials. But it, through those tears, there is a deep joy because God is using this suffering for our good. And ultimately, as we have that eternal perspective, we, um, we have the hope, our hope of glory, which he's got a lot more to say about in Romans um, chapter 8. And I think, again, it's helpful for um, younger ones in terms of expectation, because I think, you know, we're not really, um, some of us aren't really expecting to suffer. You know, our aim is just to try and get through this life with as few scrapes as possible. But here Paul says that we should expect suffering. And when trials come, rather than fall apart, because we think that they've ruined our life, actually... Um, they're in God's providence and his care for us productive because they um, they produce these things um, and ultimately there's a, a joy in that because we press on cool hopefully that is helpful right okay Nikki thank you that helps all right let's uh, I think we've had a good run of questions but we've got the picnic so we can continue to um, uh, chat more if um, about these things. But for now, let's move on to a final reflection. <clears throat>